again. Are you getting a little tired of places like Yuba City in Ontario? Well, I sure was. Now, we're going to cross the border between Oregon and Idaho over the bridge of the Snake River. There's a lot of interesting things about Idaho culture that are hidden beneath the innocuous chocolate brown soil, the faded purple mountains, and hazy horizons of this state. Do you know why potatoes are the main export of Idaho? Bob's college professor told him it was because the soil is so bad it won't grow anything else but potatoes. I don't think that professor has ever seen the Mexican soil. Like I told you before, Idaho is Bob's home state. He was raised in a tiny 700-person town called Grace, which was located in the southeastern part of the state. When he was 12 years old, his parents divorced and his mother took him and his brothers to California. Bob always liked to joke around about how he wasn't saved by Grace, but from it. <laughs> As we drove through the state, of course, it was wide open spaces, watery blue skies swirling like liquid cotton candy over hundreds and hundreds of mono farms. Depending on the time of year, it could be endless miles of green leafy potato fields, big silver sprinkler systems, scattered bales of hay that were freshly wrapped, or snow mounds piled 5 to 25 feet high against the numerous snow barriers along Interstate 84. We saw lots of rigs, meaning killer souped up expensive trucks that people in this state like to drive. You know the kind of trucks I'm talking about, big old sleek American-made shiny trucks, the kind you need a stepladder to climb up into, cabs that carry three people in the back seat and with a torque power that can drag a 2,400-pound bull out of a deep, muddy ravine. <laughs> if you ever happen to run into that kind of situation, <laughs> it, it can happen, especially in this state. Yep. <laughs> Agriculture is big business in Idaho. I remember when Bob brought me up to Grace to meet his family before we were married. His grandparents owned a tractor dealership in Grace. I was majoring in classical music at BYU, and I had an eye for the newest fashions, which at the time was yellow culottes and bright purple leggings and a Duran Duran haircut. <laughs> I remember the side stares and whispers as Bob introduced me to his 87 cousins, uncles, aunts, cousins twice removed, and so forth and so on. These folks laughed at me and called me a city slicker right to my face. God knows what all the women said about me behind my back. <laughs> Bob's grandpa never let me live down those purple leotards. <laughs> but everyone is perfectly capable of finding their own personal superiority, and I was no exception. <laughs> when I first met Bob's kin... <laughs> I thought, what a bunch of small-town provincial hicks and gossips. They use double negatives when they speak. We don't need no carrot snappers from Utah coming up here in them fancy clothes. <laughs> or, we was coming down from Trevor Smithson's house just to bump down the road from Blake Andration's. Lloyd, come here and meet Bobby's fiancée. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 
I had the grace and kept a straight face, but listening to those people speak was like hearing nails on a chalkboard. <sighs> Until I actually started paying attention to what it was they were saying exactly. Don't let them Idaho farm boys or gals bad English fool ya. <laughs> Bob's Uncle Dean kicked around town in $600 Tony Lama alligator skin boots, and that was back in 1983. Uncle Dean was so financially sophisticated, he was able to borrow millions of dollars for his 2,000-acre barley farm. His wife, Aunt Lois, drove a spanking brand new Cadillac, and the two of them vacationed in the newest model RV motorhome. <laughs> he and Bob's other uncles used to get out their measuring tapes to see whose was the longest and widest RV. <laughs> Seriously, I actually witnessed that conversation a couple of times. Bob said it was an ongoing conversation since before he was born. <laughs> With just a pencil and paper, no calculator, Uncle Dean or any of Bob's relatives could figure out what the compound interest and balloon rates on their loans were in 25 seconds flat. These people could talk circles around anybody regarding biology and the science of splicing plant genes and what male and female plants were exactly. They could talk turkey with math professors about complicated algorithms regarding the distribution of the Great Basin's water table. This date probably has the biggest pool of rocket scientists I've ever known. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that half of NASA was raised on a farm in Idaho. These people aren't dumb. They just speak poorly. But you don't want to mess around or underestimate this tough-as-nails farming culture because with all the ribbing they dish out, the high finance, trigonometry, and advanced biology... They would just as soon take you outside and kick your ever-living ass right out there on the snow mound in front of Charlene Champagne Bar. <laughs> I gotta say that again. Charlene Champagne Bar. <laughs> These Idaho farmers are the quintessential independent Westerners that Hollywood produced movies about. Believe me. I know from my own experience that the stereotype ain't no lie and neither is my accent. <laughs> As we were getting closer to home, we saw these farm folks roaring up and down the Interstate 84 corridor in their big-ass pick-em-up trucks, gassing up those hogs at the truck stops and running three John Deere's in a staggered line out in the field at harvest time, kicking up the dust something terrible. You just gotta love this state and the people. I mean, after all, I found their very best man and married him. But I gotta tell ya, there was one very big contradiction to this farm culture in Idaho, and that is the capital of the state, Boise. Boise is a small but surprisingly sophisticated city of around seven to 800,000 people. As we journeyed up from NorCal and Portland, we almost always had to pull over and spend the night in Boise. But getting to Boise in the winter was a lot harder than it seemed. Driving eastbound 84 into those Boise snowstorms was like playing hockey on a sheet of ice. Entering the city on the iced up freeway felt like a Zamboni had just been there. For those of you who don't know what a Zamboni is, it's a type of, it looks like a street cleaner machine that they use on the ice rinks to smooth out the ice. 
Our SUV felt like a hockey puck sliding around on the frozen interstate. Usually, once we got over the Blue Mountain Summit Pass at Pendleton, the weather would become a lot more manageable until we got closer to Boise and the snow. Driving through Idaho in the winter under Arctic conditions was always a white knuckler. I don't know how all those big rigs, the, you know, the three trailer trucks, how those trucks made it through the Idaho blizzards day after day, month after month. I don't even know how we drove through those Arctic conditions trip after trip without any incidences or accidents. You know how when you're flipping through the channels on Saturday's football games and all of a sudden you think you're losing your eyesight because the football field suddenly turns neon blue? (laughs) That's Boise State, so the field is blue. (laughs) This town has the best nightlife white people have ever seen. And that's a good deal because lots of times we arrived in Boise before 6 p.m. and we would have the whole night to decompress. We used to love to go to the sports bar behind the cinema near the Hampton Inn. That's across the freeway from the Boise Mormon Temple. And drink big pours of vodka and then go to the movies. (laughs) It's like we had to get all the big pours we could get before we got back to stingy, meager Utah. (laughs) But the best thing to do in the summer or winter, although it's even better in the summer, was to catch an Uber to downtown Boise, which was only about a 10-minute ride. The sparkling clean streets of downtown Boise are streaming with tons of American fun-loving white people with an occasional Asian or hippie. (laughs) When, I ask you, when have you ever seen a scene of fun-loving, cheerful, friendly, brightly dressed white people? Gays and European angles don't count. (laughs) I'll wait. You haven't. I knew it. Well, if you go to Boise, you can see this freak show of letting their hair down white people chatting, drinking, laughing, and eating at all the outdoor patios, sauntering along in freak alley, admiring phenomenal graffiti and artwork, smiling and waving. Get this. No, really. Get this. People waving at friendly cops. Yup, you heard me right. Friendly cops. Good old-fashioned, helpful, unintrusive, unthreatening police. (laughs) These peace officers cruise the streets, waving to all the festive, joyful white people like they were on a float in a damn parade. Wow, I thought I was in the twilight zone. I told you it was a freak show. Happy white people. Happy white people. Have you ever heard of such a thing? What an anomaly. People should book conventions at this unexpected and out-of-the-way place. It's so amazing. And when you do go there, you have to eat at the fork. It's kind of an innocuous name, but make a reservation, though. It's not that hard to get into, but if you make a reservation, you don't have to wait for an hour sometimes. I kid you not. This is the best restaurant in the country. I say that about at least one restaurant every episode, don't I? (laughs) 
But seriously, this is one of the best restaurants in the Northern Hemisphere. They have big barbecued artichokes and huge hand-dipped onion rings with aioli sauce that's out of this world. And I don't even like aioli sauce, but I love theirs. The prime rib and the pork ribs were to die for. They had such a fun assortment of cocktails. I'm not even going to try to describe how fantastic each recipe is, but the menu is uh, American... American cuisine with unexpected fresh presentations. Although the restaurant is really nice, the ambiance is really quite lovely. Everybody dresses super casual. I mean, this is the West and no one out West ever dresses up for anything. <laughs> Again, we never stayed out too terribly late because we always had to get up at dawn for the hockey game on the interstate. <laughs> Some of those cold Arctic mornings were so scary driving and very tense as the trucks and the cars slid off the side of the roads while the rest of us inched along at 15 miles an hour straight into a driving snow and icy blizzard. Bob said one of the hardest things about driving the Triangle was this last part of the trip. The worst part of driving through Idaho for him was how exhausted he'd become by then. He often had to stop the car on the side of the road and walk around in the freezing cold morning or rub snow on his face to wake himself up. He'd get so drowsy. I wouldn't know because by then I was really tired too. <laughs> and I had wrapped my blanket around me, put the seat back and fallen asleep. It was a tough job being an accessory, but somebody had to do it. <laughs> It was really hard for Bob to stay sharp and not get sloppy. But fortunately for us, there weren't too many state patrols roaming the interstate except in certain places in Idaho. Occasionally, we didn't spend the night in Boise, and the rhythm of the trip would land us in Mountain Home for lunch, where we would stop for gas and a hamburger until one day we decided to never do that again. <laughs> We parked the car right out front of the Wendy's where we could keep an eye on the load. We had just unwrapped our two spicy chicken sandwiches when, lo and behold, six Idaho State Troopers walked in the front door. Bob looked at me, and I looked at him. Lunch was over. <laughs> Without saying a word, we slowly but resolutely gathered up our food and threw it in the trash cans behind the cops who were putting their orders in up at the cashiers. Unnoticed, we innocently moseyed out the restaurant. Suddenly, as we approached our car right outside the door, we saw that one of the coppers had parked his canine unit right next to our load. <laughs> I thought we were both going to throw up right there. <laughs> Since we hadn't eaten yet, there was not too much to throw up. <laughs> sure enough, there was a dog in the back of the cab waiting patiently for his owner. No frantic barking or trying to tear out of the cop car to get into ours. <gasps> I'm telling Dad! 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 They have weed! I can smell it! Alarm! Alarm! Where are you, Dad? Where are you? <laughs> None of that. Just an amazingly calm and well-trained dog sitting quietly in the truck. Okay, Bob and I didn't look at the dog directly. 
quietly and gingerly, we slipped in the car, put it in reverse, and got the hell out of Dodge City. <laughs> oh, my gosh. A couple of months ago, Bob stumbled on some information that mentioned that, indeed, Mountain Home has a reputation as being the Idaho State Parole Crib. <laughs> Hang out. Once again, just say no to Mountain Home, Idaho. <laughs> Every blue moon, we might be caught having to stay in motels along I-84 other than in Boise. Let me tell you, that always sucked balls. <laughs> Gosh, you try sleeping in a motel room off of Interstate 84 in Rupert or Burley, Idaho. Here's your key, hon. Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, it's a smoking room. We won't find you for having a little puff. Ugh. God, smoking rooms are the worst. How about weed? Can I have a little puff of weed without getting fined? Are you good with that, hun? <laughs> uh, to get a last-minute reservation in these towns, we were competing against the Idaho State Competition for Country and Western Dance or the State Bowling Tournament. Need I say more? You get the imagery, right? I know you do, because all Americans have a secret longing to bowl. It's encoded in our DNA, no matter how classy we think we are. The fact that Idahoans are proud to say their state has one of the fastest speed limits in the nation, or that it's against the state law for authorities to conduct DUI checkpoints, because nine-tenths of the population would be snagged, that helps you to understand the nature of these strict constitutionalists. In other words, many Idahoans are true John Birchers. If you don't know what a John Bircher is, go look it up online. It's, it's a, a very dogmatic thing, let's put it that way. Idaho is a hotbed for people like this. Fortunately, Idaho Birchers allow Amber Alert checkpoints to be conducted because the feds supersede states' rights. Unfortunately for Bob and me, they do allow Amber Alerts because drug traffickers have no rights. I mean, ideologically, I totally support Amber Alerts. Even as a drug runner, I still support them. It's the checkpoints that I have a little problem with. One hot August evening back in 2013, as we were driving a load, we actually got caught up in an Amber Alert out on I-84 corridor and the surrounding areas. There were helicopters buzzing angrily back and forth in the skies and checkpoints from Twin Falls, Idaho to Snowville, Utah. The authorities were frantically searching for that poor little 16-year-old girl, Hannah Anderson. I don't know if any of you remember her. Hannah was abducted after a cheerleading practice in Lakeside, California by a 40-year-old creep named James DiMaggio just a few days before we drove our load through Idaho. Hannah, her mother and brother, had been staying with DiMaggio overnight. They were guests in his house the previous evening before he had kidnapped her. The bodies of the mother, the brother, and the family dog were found in DiMaggio's burned-down home. An Amber Alert was issued for Hannah, who was found blessedly alive in Cascade, Idaho, on August 10th, a week after she was abducted. DiMaggio was killed by the FBI agents during a shootout in the wilderness in Idaho where the two of them had been camping and hiding out. 
Bob and I didn't realize that we were driving straight into the checkpoint that week. As we approached the cops, like all the other cars, we had to slow down, let the authorities eyeball the car, and wave us on through. God, what if they'd wanted to do a more thorough check in the back of the cars? We were sweating bullets, and our heartbeats were off the charts because we were so guilty <laughs> for other reasons. Man, oh man, that was one of the most intense moments Bob and I have ever had. I don't mean to be narcissistic about it because I really am just so glad that Hannah made it out of that terrible ordeal alive. I'm so sorry about her family. But I'm glad that Bob and I made it safely through too. And all I can say about the whole ordeal is, holy mother, you know what? The I-84 corridor that runs through the entire state of Idaho may seem like a pastoral watercolor painting of crops in the field, peppered with bales of hay, showered by fountains of spraying water. Picture us cow herds and dairies blew by the windows of our SUV. Currently, bowling tournaments and western dance championships happen every weekend somewhere in Idaho. Wealthy farmers still drive expensive rigs and some wear Tony Llama boots. Brave, righteous John Birchers still hold the flame of freedom bright. And I have absolutely no idea how that state became a hotbed for rocket scientists. But for Bob and me, Idaho was intense, freaking intense on so many levels. This is my story about Idaho and I'm sticking to it. I also think I'm going to call it a wrap for tonight, kids. As you can see, being a drug courier really was both rich and harrowing experiences. It wasn't always all fun and games, no matter how much I laugh or ridicule myself or others. Sometimes it was downright holy mother fucking terrifying. Please excuse my French, but there's just no other words that can really even begin to convey, express the intensity of the situations that Bob and I often found ourselves in. So, you kids, be sure to stay out of trouble. Book your next convention in Boise and go see the Twilight Zone of genuinely fun-loving, happy white people. <laughs> and whatever you do, don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't do anything I would do. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.